we are deeply, deeply grateful because of the fact that you are holding the rope for us and also for different ones that are represented out here in the entrance of the church. Uh, we are happy to report to you that uh, Oded and uh, Bimini Cohen, who are supported by you guys, are, uh, have joined us and that together we are ready to launch uh, a strategy throughout the country of Israel for making disciples just like Jesus told us to make them. When he told us to make disciples, it was teaching them to obey everything that he commanded us. And it really is about more than just being aware of it. It is about obedience to the point, whatever point he requires. Uh, I have three kids. Uh, my son is a graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary with a Master's of Theology. I have a daughter who is a medical doctor. She is a pediatrician running a uh, hospital out in uh, Togo, West Africa. And I have a young daughter who is a lawyer, and uh, she is about to get married in August and to join her husband who is studying at Dallas Seminary also and go as missionaries to India. I'm just happy because it, it really shows you that it's not that they wouldn't be able to do something else. They are committed to the obedience of the Great Commission with their very lives. My daughter, the pediatrician, is, uh, has just been released of a quarantine where she was because of a Lassa fever that has claimed the life of the founding and directing doctor in the hospital where she works. A 45-year-old surgeon that died because they did not realize it was Lassa fever that had gotten to him. And uh, he literally was evacuated in a, an ambulance airplane and went to die in Germany. Uh, he leaves behind four teenage boys and his wife who are still in Togo. And my daughter was being watched because she treated another man that got the same disease. And by God's kindness and grace and in his uh, disposition to run that ministry, he did not allow for my daughter to get the Lassa fever. But I remember I was pleading with her and I said, listen, what it shows me is that there is vulnerability in the protocol for you guys to handle this kind of diseases. Wouldn't, I, wouldn't it be better to call a, a stop or a timeout on the hospital until you have the protocol in place? She said, too many people would die if we did that. So we have to just pick up the protocol as we go along, as we continue to develop this. She said, do you remember when the Ebola crisis was going on in Liberia and you were trying to launch those 270 churches, and everything was in place. And the CDC, Center for Disease Control, said, don't anybody go there. And the World Health Organization said, don't anybody go there. And every other organization, Doctors Without Borders, said, if you don't have to be here, don't come in here. But we had the antidote for the second death. We have the gospel, which brings eternal life. And I had to go. And my daughter said, well, just like you were willing to put your life on the line for Liberia, I think it's my turn. I need to do that for Togo now. What do you say? <laughs> the blessing to me is the willingness 
to obey to that point. The fact that the, my kids are willing and ready, not because they couldn't do anything else, but because Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses. And when he said that in Acts 1.8, he used the word, you shall be my martyrs. Now, Pastor Phil uh, called me a few weeks back, and he told me about the opportunity and the privilege of coming and preaching this morning. And uh, he said, I will even give you the, the theme, and I will give you the passage. We're going to be in Acts 1, and you're going to preach about whether we, how we need to engage and not just stand looking into heaven like the guys were in Acts. And I said, Pastor Phil, I already preached that in your church years ago. He said, using his gift of encouragement, I guarantee you nobody will remember what you preached. <laughs> I said, uh, thank you, I guess. <laughs> like, nobody's going to remember you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so uh, here I am. You know, back at that time, I spoke in Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. And I was focusing it on, in relationship to a German proverb that says, the main thing is that the main thing always remain the main thing. Does anybody remember the main thing <laughs> out there? I mean, there's one gentleman, praise the Lord. Anybody else? Uh, it feels like a, like a bad evangelistic meeting here, hoping. You know, the idea is that God has given through Christ the great commission. That is the Main thing for the corporate church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, divides nicely into three parts. Preparation of the disciples, the commissioning of the disciples, and the, the compelling force that is supposed to make us go out and do what he told us to do in the Great Commission. In the preparation, we were supposed to be intellectually prepared with the 40 days of convincing proofs that he was alive after the resurrection. We just, just celebrated the resurrection. And there are indisputable facts about that resurrection. Remember that nobody, no serious scholar, is really questioning whether one Friday a man named Jesus from Galilee... Nazareth, they were saying, died on a cross crucified because he said he was the king of the Jews. Nobody disputes that he died. Nobody disputes either the second fact that he was buried in a tomb of, that belonged to a man, Joseph of Arimathea. The third thing nobody disputes is that three days later that tomb was empty. How it got empty, there are two camps. One that says that somebody stole the body, and the other one that says he was risen from the dead. He rose from the dead. You know, the fourth thing that nobody disputes is that 40 days later, the disciples that were absolutely cowardly the night of the arrest were now bold as lions, willing to lay down their lives, saying, we've seen him, he's alive. He's got the power over death, and he can get me out of the tomb. And they were willing to bet their lives on it. Nobody disputes those four indisputable facts. And God crowns the ministry of Christ by the ascension. 
That happens in verse 9. He is ascended unto heaven. God, having seen his son come down, having existed in a form as God, did not see that as something to hang on to. But he was willing to be obedient and make himself into a servant and be obedient unto death, death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him on high and gave him a name that is above any other name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is gospel. That is exactly what happened. And that is something that we find out in Acts chapter 1. And that's what we say. The main thing is that the main thing always remain the main thing. And if you don't remember it, then we need to say it together. How about this? I'll say each line. The main thing, main thing, is that the main thing always remain. The main thing. Great. And what is the main thing? Because sometimes people remember the proverb, but they don't remember what the main thing is. The main thing is the great commission. Okay? So the main thing, please, all together, the main thing is that the main thing always remain the main thing. And the main thing is the great commission. Very good. We, we, we needed to do this second round. He was right. There, there, a lot of folks forgot the main thing. But you know, don't forget to hold a rope. Don't forget because somebody's going to stay down in the mine. Somebody's going to go down. But more importantly, people that need to hear the gospel will lose it. And this is not just a fun little reminder on a beautiful Sunday morning. Folks, you know what is happening in the United States is in the 80s, we had 85,000 North American missionaries from the United States mostly throughout the world preaching the gospel to peoples of the world. Today, there are less than 35,000. We have lost over 50,000 missionaries that used to be around the world, mostly because people have developed, quote, other priorities. They're giving in other directions. But you know, when Jesus said that we were supposed to be his witnesses, that is the priority. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that we worry about that goad us into materialism and into so many other things. Those will be added unto you. That is Jesus saying that it's not my idea, nor, nor am I apologizing for him. That's the conviction that he, being God, has communicated to us. He wants us to be about that main thing. And he wants us to engage in the Great Commission. Now, focusing on the passage in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we also see that it divides into three parts. The first part has to do with the ascension. The second part has to do with the attendance. Two angels that are there to witness to the fact that he left, but he is coming back. And then the third part has to do with the admonition. Why are you standing around? Why are you not engaged? Why 
are you looking to, I think the time's about right. He's about to come back. You know, I think any moment now, you know, some people have been dressed in white and gone up on hills to wait for him. But he wants us instead to be engaged, to be doing all we can. When I was with you on that Sunday that is little remembered, I closed the message with an illustration about a tourist that was going around the Italian Alps. And he was looking at a place that had a lake and had mansions around the lake. I've been to beautiful mountainscapes in Italy, like the city of Avellino, and I can just picture everything that this man was going through. The tourists saw that there was a mansion that had a wonderful, beautiful, exquisite garden. And he began to take pictures of the place. And as he began to take pictures, he saw that the gardener was in the grounds. So the tourist says to the gardener, the man who lives here must totally love flowers. The tourist said, I wouldn't know. Or rather, the gardener says, I wouldn't know. And the man says, the tourist, doesn't he live here? The gardener says, no, he doesn't. The tourist says, then he must come at least on the weekends to enjoy this beautiful place. The gardener says, no, he doesn't come on the weekends. The tourist says, well, then at least once a month, right, to pay you. And the gardener says, no, he made arrangements with a bank in the village, and I get paid every month. The tourist says, just a moment, how long have you worked here? And the gardener says, 10 years. And the tourist says, 10 years? You worked here 10 years. He doesn't live here. He doesn't come on the weekend. He doesn't come once a month. He doesn't come once a year. Yet you have this place like he's coming back tomorrow. The gardener said, today, sir, he could come back today. The imminence of the coming of the Lord means there's no mediating necessary step for him to come back. There is nothing that prevents for him to come any moment. There's nothing in the calendar of prophecy that needs to be fulfilled for him to show up and take us away. So that gives us an amazing urgency about the fact that we have been charged not with a with a harvest of flowers that fade, fall off, and go away. We have been charged with a stewardship of a harvest of eternal souls that will remain for all of eternity. And that is the motivation for us to engage in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. And that is what God is all about. And so thinking about what it is that makes us sort of hesitate in the engagement, I was thinking of a synopsis on the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah. Uh, Jonah is, uh, some people say, it's a whale of a tail. Others say it's a tail of a whale. <laughs> uh, and, and so we have people on either side. You know, but, you know, Jonah, even though there's a lot of skepticism about the book, 
by liberals and people that don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. You know, the guy that taught us about Jonah is a professor at Dallas Seminary, and it is a Dr. John Hanna. And he has documented his introduction to Jonah in the Bible Knowledge Commentary. And he tells you, for starters, that there are documented cases in which on one occasion, a macrocephalus whale, that is a big sperm whale, has swallowed whole a 15-foot shark in one swoop. He can swallow a shark that's 15 feet long. He can swallow a man, even though he might be 7 feet tall. So that happened, and it is recorded. And then there are four occasions where whale sharks have swallowed men alive. And in at least two of those, they recover the person alive. That is documented. Well, you go to the skeptic and you say, so you see, there is evidence that that can happen. And then he says, so basically then there is no miracle. If it's just a natural event, there's no miracle. He didn't want the miracle to begin with. And now that you demonstrate to him, it doesn't have to be miraculous. He loves it. There has to be no miracle. And there's a saying in Spanish, there is no worse blind man than the one who refuses to see. And that's exactly what's going on. If you don't want to believe, there is no one that will make you believe. Not even God wants to make you. He's much stronger. He could twist both arms off. And he's, he's not interested. He gave you a free will. Either you come by your will and say, your will be done. Or he'll say, okay, your will be done. And your will has consequences. So, Jonah is a book that presents us with incredible information, but the way that the Lord, the Holy Spirit has presented it to us is by way of sharp contrasts. In the book, just like in the medieval painters that were called the tenebrists, the ones that used darkness and light, what they would do is they'd take a frame and from one of the corners they would introduce light. And from another one, opposing corner, they would introduce, introduce darkness. And then there's a diagonal line where light and darkness clash. And that makes the object of the painting or the subject being painted to almost float in a three-dimensional way. To make it so obvious that it's as if the painter were saying, you see? Do you see? Do you see what I see? Do you? Do you see? How this is so sharply clear in this painting. And that is Jonah. In Jonah, God, the, the synopsis of the book is God said, go. Jonah said, no. God said, oh, Jonah did go. And so what happens in chapter 1 is that God says to Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn them and, you know, that he was going to destroy them in judgment for their sin in their society. And Jonah heard it clearly. He was a prophet. He knew it was God, and he knew what kind of God he was, a compassionate God. So he got in a boat headed for Spain out of Joppa. Tarshish, the mines of Tarshish, continue to be there in Spain today. And so when he was on his way, God, the protagonist of the book, 
provided a wind and a storm and created a big storm. Jonah had gone into the cargo bay of the ship and had fallen asleep. Listen carefully, beloved family, because some people are comparing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the 21st century to Jonah. Jonah heard go one time. But God said to the church, go in Matthew, go in Mark, go in Luke, go in John, and go in Acts chapter 1. And there is a lot of diminishing obedience about going. And Jonah was more interested in the political climate and situation of the Iraqis that he was sent to go warn. And we may have a connection with that saying, well, if it was Iraq, I wouldn't go either. But see, this is not, this is not the heart of compassion of God. God loves people. And I, <laughs> it was a delight for us to see so many people represent. This should be the, the people's church. Because here, all of us are made by God, loved by God, saved by God. And we're all together fellowshipping in his name through his sponsorship. And that should be our heart of compassion to the world as well. We should be reaching out to them, loving them, and eager for everyone to hear, for everyone to come and be saved. You know, turn to me all the ends of the earth, the Lord says. I am God. There is no other. And this is the way that we need to reach out to the people. Well, what's happening in Jonah chapter 1, he goes to sleep in the cargo bay, and while he's asleep, you know, the, the captain of the ship goes and sees that this man is asleep in the cargo bay. And literally in the Hebrew, it's like something like, you lazy person, why are you asleep? You know, I translate it generously, you lazy bum, what, why are you asleep? Get up, pray to your God. Maybe he will be the one to have compassion on us. Bingo. Exactly. He's the one that has compassion. And Jonah was really, you know, totally, you know, careless, apathetic. And they cast lots to find out why does this happen to us? Who's the responsible party? And sure enough, the lot falls to Jonah. And so they say, who are you? Where do you come from? What nation? This and that. And he answers in good Hebrew, Ivri, any, a Hebrew am I. National pride leading the way. I am from this political party. We have far more political activism than we have work for the Great Commission in so many sectors this day. And yet we know through the prophecy of Daniel that the kingdom of our God and of his Christ will be like a rock that hits the statue of the nations and all the kingdoms of the earth will be broken to pieces and forgotten and that, that, that stone rock that hits that, that image is going to become a mountain that fills the earth. That's the kingdom that will last. That's the true political power that will never end. That's where we need to focus our energies because we belong to him. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. So Jonah is in the midst of this dialogue. And who are you? I, a Hebrew am I. 
And this, I serve the God that made the earth and the sea and what? He made the sea. And you chose to escape by way of the sea? What kind of thinking is that? Look at all the trouble that's coming to us. And so on. So what do we need to do to make this stop? He said, pick me up and throw me into the sea and the storm will cease. And they said, we pick you up and throw you into the sea? Are you crazy? Not on your life. Guys, we're going to save this man. We're going to row the hardest we've ever rowed. And they start. It says they rode as hard as they could, but the storm was getting fiercer and fiercer. Look at this. This is exactly what the author wants you to see. Look at the man who should have had compassion, asleep, apathetic, couldn't care less, political, you know, every sort of other thing occupying his time, his mind, his heart, and not the compassion that God wanted in him. And the sailors that should have been caring only about themselves, selfishly about their lives, etc., they are willing to risk their lives trying to row him out of trouble as hard as they can. And what, what's wrong with this picture? It's what the author is telling us. What's happening here? Should we have no compassion? God asks in the end of the book, should I have no compassion? There's Nineveh, this great city with all these people and all these animals. You're worried about one plant. Me, you, you got mad because I provided a worm to chew it up overnight, just like it came overnight. And you got mad as anything because of that plant. I bet you even talked to that plant. You loved that plant. It, everything was cute, you know, great about that plant. Is that the way to go about this? Should I have no compassion on this city with all these people and all these animals and not to mention all the plants? There are lots of plants there. Should I have not compassion? And God is saying, in, in a rhetorical way, he's saying, should you have no compassion? Should Manny have no compassion? Should, you know, Pastor Phil, should Jim, you know, Bob, you know, Pete, Mary, you know, Debbie, everybody here, should you have no compassion? Should you not be compassionately engaged in reaching out and fulfilling the great commission that saved you? See, God saves him all over again from the depths where he was going to drown by providing a fish, and there he repents. Oh, the, the, the weeds were wrapped around my head. I thought I was a goner, you know, this and that. But you delivered me. You sent this fish, and how grateful I am, and this and that. Well, you who have received compassion, should you not be compassionate? That's what God is saying. Do you see the pictures? Do you see what's happening? Uh, I have a sister in Germany, and uh, she's married to a German, has been there for about 45 years. And uh, we used to go visit her every time, uh, once a year in Bonn. Uh, now she lives in Berlin. And uh, she, one time we came to see her, went with my nephew to get some groceries at the grocery store. When they were coming back, they uh, were stopped at a traffic light behind another car. Above that car, there was a branch from a tree. And out of the tree, a nest fell on top of the car in front of them. And they saw there was a chick inside that nest. 
before they could warn the driver, he took off. And they were frantic trying to follow him and catch up to him because they could see how this featherless chick was trying to maintain its balance on top of that car. Thankfully, they stopped at the next light. And by the time they got to that next light, you know, my nephew ran out. He must have been 10 to 12 years of age at that time. And he told the man, you have a, a, a nest with a chicken. It fell from a tree, you know, back in the other light. And the man is like at a loss. What, what, what do I do with that? And, you know, my nephew says, can I keep it? And the man was all too glad to let him have it. You just take it. And he thought he had the jackpot in the biggest lottery that around. He was coming home with this chick and my my sister was so proud of her son and of this chick also. I thought, you know, I mean, I don't know if you've seen those, those uh, nature com- uh, uh, documentaries on TV where they show birds as they are born. They're featherless. They have these grotesque beaks. You can almost see inside of them. And, uh, you know, I, I don't particularly like those birds, you know, the way that they present, you know. But... I thought this thing is probably going to die in three days anyway, but not on my sister's watch. They got a box, and they prepared it just in a perfect way. They put, you know, shredded newspaper for like a warm nest, a little glow plug, this and that, to keep it warm. She would literally get up. This is no, you know, no frill on this story. She would get up at 3 in the morning to get with a beaker, a little mix of water and uh, cornmeal, to just drop it into the beak of this little bird. And I had thought three days and it will die. Nope. We were there 10 days. It had not died. And uh, we left. And I would get weekly reports from my sister, (laughs) unsolicited, of course. But she would call me and she would tell me, you know, the day that they found out what kind of bird it was because when it was featherless, all you saw was the little blob with a beak. But now she told me the day that the feathers came all in and so on, it's a dove, it's a dove. And that's how she opened up the conversation, it's a dove. And I thought, you know, congratulations, you got a dove. You know, I, um, you know some people, it's a boy, it's a girl, now it's a dove. So uh, congratulations on the dove, you know. It, she called me when it took baby steps, you know, it flew around the living room and it came back. The thing that excited her most is that it came and landed on her shoulder. She told me she knows I'm the mom and she's my, my dove. And, this. and I thought, wow, that's fantastic. You know, this is great. <clears throat> but, you know, she also called me the day she gave it its freedom. Now, you have to understand my sister's very poetical. She opened the windows in the second floor. She got out there, and she read a few lines that she had prepared. Goodbye, my sweet dove. Fine, fair horizons. May warm weathers carry you. This, I mean, <clears throat> I just thought, oh, what, you know. And, and then she said, but this is the great thing. It had no big plans. It just went around the neighborhood. It flew around, came back home. Hi, Mom, I'm back. You know, anything for supper, you know. Uh, and she was thrilled. She said, it, it knows this is her home, this is that. And so she was totally excited. But then a couple of months later, she called me in tears. The neighbor's cat. 
They did it again. Compassion lives warm and well in this church. Pastor Phil, praise the Lord. They will be engaging in the Great Commission with great compassion. Praise God. You know, <clears throat> she wanted to know if in all the studies in either the masters or the doctor or reading theological journals or whatever, I had come anywhere across the concept that there is a heaven for doves. I know my sister, so I tried to go 10 different ways with the answer to try to kind of get her dizzy and then just release a quick no, you know, very quickly. <clears throat> Did not work. She is tuned to only one two-letter two word. Is there a no in this? And yes, there is a no. And when I said there is not, then she took issue with me. She said, how can you categorically deny that there could be a heaven for doves? I said, well, I, you know, never came across one. It just uh, like you asked. And she said, but do, does that mean that you never miss class at the seminary? <laughs> I was there most every time, you know, but... So could it be possible that there, there was a day when they taught about a heaven for doves and you missed it? <laughs> I, I, you know, she said, have you read every theological book that's out there? I said, no, I'm just going on this one book right now, but uh, <laughs> no heaven for doves there. She was angry with me. She was angry because pain distorts perspective. And she loved that dove too much to allow for the possibility that there is no heaven for doves. She cared more about that dove than just about any other thing on, in those days. And I know many times we can love our dog, we can love our cat, we can love our dove, we can love our duck, we can love whatever and God wants us to be aware that there should be a love and a compassion for our, for our fellow men. That he has made us the watchmen of that generation and that he wants us to reach out to them. So my question to you, with all my love and with the, with the intensity of the family that we are in Christ, is, is there heaven for Californians? Is there a heaven for Pakistanis? Is there a heaven for the Chinese? And if there is, for every people, tongue, tribe, nation, who is going to tell them? According to Jesus, he says, you, you shall be my witnesses. Moved by compassion. You shall be my martyrs, is the word, in Acts 1.8. That's in the Greek. The spelling of witness is M-A-R-T-Y-R-E-S. You shall be my martyrs. We cannot be jonastic about our priorities. Loving plants and ducks and doves and cats and dogs, horses, 
trees, etc., without first being his witnesses, first seeking his kingdom. We cannot allow the disease of so many other churches that have let go of the rope to come in here. God loves us as a special family that we are in this place. And he wants us to join him. My father works until this day, Jesus in John 5, 17. And thus, I work. The main thing is that the main thing always remain the main thing. Amen? We pray. Father, we worship you with deep gratitude because we are definitely grateful that we're saved and that our, our destination is glory. We're going to heaven. And we pray, oh God, that you would help us to have compassion as we have received compassion. And just as we moaned for the dove that got eaten by the cat, moan for the people that live around us and live at the corners of the earth that you want us to love and to reach out to, to the glory of your great name as it was your idea through your son and not anybody else's. Help us to get there. Help us to co come up with a human chain that will reach out to the ends of the earth, to the glory of your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.